God's people are no longer in, are, are no longer in bondage to suffering, but they needed rebuilding. They had their city back. They had their temple back, but their city was unsafe. Now, in our cities nowadays, it's totally different. I mean, you live, some, some of you live within 20 feet of your neighbor's house. Some of you live 200 yards from your neighbor's house, but you're safe on your own property. There's kind of this invisible wall around your property. When I bought my first house on 45th Street here in Erie, in between Green Garden and Washington, I think. First thing I did is I, is I went in the house and I, I just jumped up and down because I'd never owned a house before. And then I went out front and the, and the kids were in the front yard and I said, get off my property. Are you here? You know how empowering that is? They're like, Dad, what are you doing? I'm like, I just wanted to tell somebody, get off my property. Well, they were now... Worshiping, they were now taken care of, they were safe, they were unsafe, but they had their uh, they had their worship in the temple and, and they were kind of back to normal, but a city without walls in this time was a city that was unsafe because the walls made for your security, it's for your armies. People lived in the walls. They lived in the walls of this city when it got rebuilt, when the walls got rebuilt. It was very common for people to say, oh, that's a great place to live because it has a wall around it. We have all heard these lines before. All these, all these uh, places where you get stuck in life. It's not my problem. I don't like doing that. I'm in over my head. Everybody can relate. Now watch what happens. Nehemiah was just doing his thing. How many of you get up in the morning? Let's just talk for a minute. Let's be real. You get up in the morning, and you have a routine. Anybody have a routine? Yeah. And, and my wife has a routine. I, I do not mess with that routine. And I won't tell you what it is, but it involves her world. And she has a place. I don't ever move anything within her world. And we have this routine, this, this normal way that we do things. And here's, here's what happened. Nehemiah had his routine. He had a really good job, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But he's doing his thing, and all of a sudden he sees his I believe it's his blood brother, Hanani. He sees him walking through the city, and he goes to his brother, and quite possibly this had happened before, because it wasn't any big deal. How many of you have ever been going through the grocery store, and you see someone that you know, and you just say, hey, how's it going? Right? How many of you have ever gone through the grocery store and seen someone and said, I don't want to talk to them, and switched aisles? Yes, I've been there and done that. Yeah, nah, I think I, I don't need ketchup that bad. I can tell you right now. I'm not. He saw his brother, and he did what we normally do. Dude, what's up? How's it going? And immediately, Hanani starts into this, this uh, story of, hey, worship's been restored. 
Ezra has rebuilt the temple. And now we, we are, we're about two-thirds of the way there, but the city is really unsafe. Now, we live in a world like that right now where cities are becoming very unsafe. Now, I was raised in the 60s. Do I have a witness? Anybody in here remember that there was a 60s? That was a different century, you know. And we had violence. We had curfews. You remember? And you, you couldn't drive through the town. They closed the interstate in my hometown. Interstate 95 goes straight up the east, east coast. They in Wilmington, Delaware, they shut it from the state line to the Maryland state line. You couldn't be out past 11 o'clock. My brother had to get a pass to go to work. And if he got stopped on the interstate, they would see his pass. They'd let him go. How many of you are here? So we've kind of seen this before, but it's happening again. And if someone were to say, well, how are things going? How are things working out in, at home? And all of a sudden, Han and I got honest. And he started to tell it. For us to fully understand this, we need an a understanding of Jewish history. Now, Pastor Greg is a great history teacher. I was a great history attender. How many of you are here? How many of you are like me? It's history. Yeah, I'll be there. But I won't be there. So I'm going to try and do my best. Pray hard right now. Jewish history begins with Abraham at approximately 2000 B.C. But it was not until 1,000 years later that Israel took on the world took on world significance under someone we all know, Saul, David, and Solomon. In their successive reigns, these three kings, Israel's flag flew proudly over the nation. Israel was finally recognized as a major military power under David's 40-year term of office. David advanced the cause of Israel to remarkable proportions. Upon his death, David turned his throne over to his son Solomon. And if you know your Bible, you know that, that by the last part of his life, Solomon had compromised so obviously with the word of God that God judged him. 1 Kings 11.11 says, So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, you have not kept my commandment and my statute, which I have commanded you. Listen, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of your hand, the hands of your son. When Solomon died, there was a split in the nation's military ranks, and God was honest to his word. And so there was a long period of history where there was dysfunction in uh, Israel. There was dysfunction in leadership. They fought each other. How many of you know you're not supposed to fight in your own house? Hold on. You're not supposed to fight in your own house. I had three kids. We had several rules. One of them is, this is our home field. When you are here, you're safe. There is no... Now, you may disagree, and you may disagree vehemently, but that's why there's a door on your bedroom. Everybody with me? Don't you ever hit each other. Don't you ever hit each other. There's not going to be any hitting in this house. 
How many of you know the home should be the safest place? Hold on. The home should be the safest place. This is where you interact, okay? All right? How many of you think the home should be the safest place? It should. And we should teach our kids that, hey, this is where we get along. But now, all of a sudden, home was not safe anymore. God judged Israel when the Assyrians invaded in 722 B.C. The ten tribes of the northern kingdom that had split off were now, uh, the ten tribes that were finished, the northern kingdom now was wiped out, and there was only two tribes left, and they were in what's called the southern kingdom. It's called the land of Judah. How many have ever heard of the land of Judah? It remained a Jewish nation for more than 300 years. However, in 536 B.C., Babylon's king Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem and all of Judea, all of Judah, and took the people captive. And when you're reading the Old Testament, this is what was known as the captivity. Everybody say that with me, the captivity. Okay? So now they are captives to a man named Nebuchadnezzar. How many of you can... Remember Nebuch you remember Nebuchadnezzar. Some of the things about Nebuchadnezzar. How many of you can spell Nebuchadnezzar? Okay, just checking. This began what is called the Babylonian captivity. The biblical account is in 2 Chronicles 36, verses 18 and 19. It records the end of Judah's history and the beginning of the Babylonian captivity. Just two tribes, southern kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't Jewish people left in the northern kingdom. Because this is important for the Nehemiah story. As time went on, people from the north were migrating because they wanted to be with their families. How many of you like being with your families? We just vacationed with one of our children and their kids. And, man, there's nothing like it. Even, even when they eat popsicles. These are little kids. These are six, four, and Almost two, right? I bought them purple popsicles. And their mom is like, why did you buy purple? I'm like, because it's great. Hello? I live in Northwest PA. Hello? It says, Welch's. You think I'm not going to support my local? My daughter's like, Dad, but do they have white grape? I said, I don't know. I'll, no, they don't. Did you check? I ain't telling, because I didn't check. I loved being with our family. They were coming back. They'd have a family reunion. They'd come and they'd visit. The land of Judah remained a Jewish nation for more than 300 years, but in 586, everything started to change when Nebuchadnezzar got his hands on the people. And you can read those stories in the Old Testament of him making everybody bow to him. How many remember that? Nebuchadnezzar was a wicked king. The Psalm 137 was written during this dismal time, and the psalmist cried out, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Their land was not restored. They weren't with their families. They always longed to be back together. Now, I don't know about you, my, my family, our three kids, they're scattered all over the country. And I dream of the day when we're all in one place, vacationing together and liking each other. I'm one of nine kids. I have seven 
in-laws and 27 nieces and nephews and 57 great nieces and nephews. If we had everybody together at one time, there's over 100. How many of you are here? That family doesn't need to get together. There's enough of them to just do little pockets. And are you here? But this, this was a little different. This is like, this is like hey, you know, it's, it's like a real spiritual high school reunion, which high school reunions are not spiritual. Listen, we want to be together. We want to be together. And they finally started coming back together. And as they did, Ezra came along. Have you ever heard the book of Ezra? Ezra is about building the temple. It's a miraculous building of the temple. So they had a place to worship. But their neighborhoods were a mess. The city was burnt down. It was a real dump. And I'll never forget <coughs> when Sue and I went to uh, Europe and we went to um, uh, Czech Republic and then we went to um, Dresden, Germany. And some of you will remember on the last night of World War II, Dresden was carpet bombed just cause. And it's still carpet bomb. It's not been rebuilt. They will not rebuild it with government money. They're trying to do it with private money. We walk through the rubble. We, you're not allowed to walk through it, but you walk by it. It's like 25 blocks of just carpet bomb. Concrete. The only thing that's been rebuilt is a church. And we literally saw that. And I'm like, wow, this is what war looks like. Well, that's what the city looked like. And 2 Chronicles 36.20 introduces us to Israel's curtain call. And those who had escaped from the sword to be carried away to Babylon, they were servants to Nebuchadnezzar and his sons until the rule of the king of Persia. Now, that's important because the new king of Persia was a nicer guy. I mean, you know, some people, there's an old saying, uh, Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, this guy was absolutely corrupt, and a new one came along. God didn't forget his people. When the kings changed, there was a new king in Persia, and there was a king named Cyrus who ruled Persia, and another king named Darius who ruled the Medes. How many have ever heard of the Medes and Persians? The two nations were allies, but since the Persian force was larger of the two, the two countries were often called simply the kingdom of Persia. The Medes and the Persians invaded Babylon and overthrew it, forcing the Babylonian Empire to surrender. What happened then? Second Chronicles 36, 22. Thus says the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdom of the earth, and he has appointed, appointed me, listen, listen to this, he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is Judah. Whoever there is among you of all these people, may the Lord his God be with you and let them go up. He was talking about Ezra. Let him build a house, but we won't let him build walls. Because if they build walls, then they own the city. Then they're safe. Then they have self-governance and self-control. As a matter of fact, James states, consider it 
all joy. There was a problem. James says to consider it all joy when you fall into various trials for your problems develop faith. Now, I know that everybody in this room has at least one problem. You do. I mean, I can't reach the top shelf. It's a problem. Just the way it's always been. James says, count it all joy when you fall into problems. Well, wait a minute. I, I can't remember ever going, holy cow, I'm going to run out of gas. Man, that's a, it feels good. It feels good to, to have that desperate feeling. That, you know? Like, that, like that's stupid. I mean, I know a lot of people say, you shouldn't use that word. But in that circumstance, you should use that word. Because you knew you needed gas. You just couldn't afford to buy it. Are you here? All right, this is totally off the subject, but you got to hear it. How do you know I tell a story no matter what? We're doing a teacher appreciation lunch now. And you guys were kind enough to give us <coughs> $10 gift cards for gas at Sitka. And this is just as the gas prices were going up. So we were giving away $10 gas, gas cards. Now, granted, it's nice to win $10 worth of gas. Are you with me? But every time I gave one, I would say, some of you are going all the way home tonight. We're going to give you two gallons of gas. The rest of you, sorry, you're going to stay here for the summer unless someone comes your way. They were, they were uh, struggling, and they had a problem. And the problem was we don't know how we're going to be a city again. We got a place to worship. How many of you know it's nice to have a place to worship, but if no one feels safe to come there, you're not going to have any people. And I will tell you this. Buildings are great, but without the people, they're worthless. Are you here? If you're not here, we come in here all the time during the week. It's not the same. But when you're here, it's wonderful. How many of you know we like all of you? Isn't it nice to be liked and loved? And you're in a safe place. That's all they wanted. They just wanted something safe. Well, we are now at the third, um, third wave of people going back to Jerusalem. The first company left with Zerubbabel because he made them. The second left 80 years later, Company B, they left, with, left Babylon with Ezra because they were appointed to build the temple. And then now we're at 13 years later, Nehemiah led Company C back to the destroyed city. The temple at the time had been without protection, listen to this, for 90 years. There had been 90 years of living in an unsafe condition. Now, every day I read the paper, but I don't read the whole paper. I read the headlines and who died. If you're not there, you're good. This morning, I read the paper. Some lady died this week, 109 years old, born in 1916, I think, or something like that, 109 years old. Some of these people had lived for 90 years and never lived in safety. Are you all getting the picture? They were really longing for God to give them a safe place, and then it happened. Nehemiah was called by God to come and finish the wall after nine long decades. Now, I have a question for you. How long did it take for Nehemiah to fix 
this 90-year-old problem. You can write this down. 52 days. How many of you know God is a miracle-working God, and what you've struggled with for years and decades, he can restore in the snap of a finger? 90 years and restored in 52 days. How does that happen? Well, there was a meeting, a chance meeting of Nehemiah and Hanani. And Nehemiah said to Hanani, listen, you know the history. You know, he doesn't have to say it all. He just says, how are things at home? And Hanani says these words. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble. Trouble in the uh, Hebrew text is, a interest, is an interesting word. Trouble is uh, interpreted philipsis. It actually starts T-H-L-P-I-S-I-S. Philipsis. And it means this. You can write this down. This will help you. It means a tight spot or a troubling trouble that is ongoing. They're in trouble. They're in a tight spot. Anybody here claustrophobic? Raise your hand if you're claustrophobic. I mean, it's okay. Be proud of it. I'm claustrophobic. I'm proud of my claw. I went to the MRI station on Peach Street by uh, Central High School. There's an imaging center there. And they needed to do a imaging on my neck. And so the lady says to me, are you claustrophobic? I'm like, no, I'm not claustrophobic. Oh, because you're going in a tube. No problem. She puts this thing on my neck to stabilize it. She lays me on the table. (coughs) And I'm thinking this thing on my neck is attached to a board and I can't get up. So my brain starts going, this isn't good. I'm not claustrophobic, but I don't like not being able to get out of something. And she presses a button. How many of you have ever been in that machine? And it goes, and you start moving. And it was a little uncomfortable, and I said, you know what, just close your eyes. And then she says, this isn't going to be that bad. It's only 31 minutes. And I'm like, 31 minutes? I'm not laying my eyes closed for 31 minutes. Now I'm halfway in the tube. I'm like, I'm opening my eyes. I opened my eyes and I went, nope, nope, nope. Press the button. Get me out. Get me out. I'm not, I do not want to be in here. Nope, nope, nope. She pressed the button. She brings me out. She said, maybe you are. I said, I don't know what I am, but I ain't doing that. I ended up at Hammond at the uh, open MRI with some medication to make me just not care. They were in trouble. They had a tight spot. And it's amazing how we feel when we get in tight spots. Do I have anybody that can relate? Nope. Nope. She, and then she looks at me. I forgot this part. She looks at me, and she starts laughing. And I went, why are you laughing? She goes, it was the best. Nope. 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 She said, I never had anybody do that. I said, usually they just go, hey, I'm getting a little scared. Press the button. Not me. I was, I was, I was ready. To, you know. Anyway, we'll move on. First off, the four, there's four words that will indicate to us 
whether or not we're going to make a change in something. I call them the four verbs of a vexed heart. The first verb is Nehemiah listened. 32 words. Nehemiah cared enough to ask, dude, how you doing? How are things at home? Now, I don't know about you, but I've met a lot of people and said to them, how are you doing? And right as soon as I said it, in my brain, I went, why did I say that? Are you here? There are some people you, you meet and you see and you go, I really don't want to know how you're doing. Because you're going to tell me how you're doing. And it's going to take way too long. So those people, when you see them, you go, hey, dude. Good to see you. Yes. Now, if I ever see you and say good to see you, you're going to go, he thinks I'm one of those people. Yeah. Um, Nehemiah cared enough to ask. He was, a, he was not a minister. He was not a king. He was not a deacon. He was not hierarchy in the religious culture. Nehemiah was a working man like you and I. He had a government job, and he worked for the government. And he was a cupbearer for the king. Now, we'll get into that more next week when we start talking about his role. He was a man in a position that required great responsibility, a man that stood that close to the king. He was a cupbearer for the king. He had to be handsome. How if you can imagine him getting hired in our day and time? Uh, yeah. Yeah, give me candidate one. Yeah, nah, you're not the man. You're ugly. Um, give me two. Nah, you're, you're ugly. Oh, three. What's his name? Nehemiah? Yeah, he can stay. That was criteria number one. You had to be good looking. Now, there are some of us in here that would apply for that job, even though we know deep in our heart we weren't going to get it. It required him to be knowledgeable of court procedures. And to be able to converse with the king and advise the king if the king asks. So he had to be able to be friendly with the big man. He had a pretty cool job. He was like the second, not in command, but he was the first voice. He kind of was the second in succession of information and what should we do. God put him in this position because God had a work for him to do. So first off, we learn this. Nehemiah. When his brother talked, he listened. Now, let me share with you a little bit about listening and being a good listener. There are three kinds of listeners in the world. There's the one that listens to you but is already not listening because they're forming what they're going to say. Are you with me? And you're talking to them, and in your brain you're going, what difference does it make? You weren't listening to me. You were thinking about what you were going to say. How many of you are married? No, I'm sorry. Don't go there. That just slipped out, okay? There's a second listener. There's a second listener that is listening, but they're not going to do anything you said. You are wasting your time. I raised two 14-year-old daughters, and I was there. Yeah, listen to me. You're not, you are not listening to me. No, I'm listening to you. I know exactly what you said. But you're not going to do it. Well, I'm not thinking. Then there's the third listener. And they are the engaged listener. 
when you're telling them something, they are listening to you and going, I want to know what you're talking about. They're really fun people to be around. They make eye contact. They shake their head. They ask if they can help. That was the kind of listener that Nehemiah was. He only heard 32 words. And when he heard them, here's what happened. The second word is wet. Nehemiah heard that his home city was a mess. And it was unsafe. And his people for 90 years have been living in fear. And when, when uh, Hannah and I said to him, they're unsafe, it triggered something in his heart. Now, I am not much of a crier. How many of you are with me? I'm just not much of a crier. I don't cry. How many of you will be honest in church and say, yeah, I cry pretty easy. I, I, yeah, yeah. And, and I, I, I don't get that. And growing up, I was taught, listen to this, real men don't cry until my father died. When I was very young, and I was in a funeral home going, real men don't cry. Dad always told me, real men don't cry. And I was just sitting there, and I was fighting tears. And, you know, I finally cried. It's the best, best thing I ever did in my life. Crying is not a sign of weakness. Crying can be one of the strongest motivators you've ever seen in your life. There are times in my life where things have happened, and I've heard them, and I just cry. Because I don't know what else to do. It breaks my heart. Nehemiah wept. What makes people laugh or cry is often an indication of their character. Some believe that weeping is a sign of weakness, but in this case, it was surely a sign of strength. Jesus cried. Now, I know the shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept. How many of you are here? And it's the one you memorize for vacation Bible school every year to get free candy. Are you here? Uh, did you get your memory verse? Yes, I did. Do you have it memorized? Yes, I do. Which one is it? Jesus wept. Okay, go pick something out of the treasure chest. That verse in Greek is one of the longest verses in the New Testament. Isn't that phenomenal? God's just playing with us. That's all. Jesus wept. He cried. Matter of fact, that word wept was not just a sad, like, tearing up. It was a true Jewish wailing. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen the pictures of the wailing wall. They actually wail there. So when Jesus cried, it wasn't a little tear. He wailed. He cried out loud. He didn't see tears as a sign of weakness. He saw uh, tears as a sign of strength. And when Jesus wept over Lazarus. It was a real, real social big deal. Jesus is weeping. He doesn't weep very often, but he's like wailing. Nehemiah was wailing. Now, here's what he said. He said, I wept. And then Nehemiah said, I fasted. Nehemiah wasn't under any obligation to fast. Israelites only fasted one day a year and it was, it was a requirement. He all of a sudden said, I'm going to go out of my routine. I'm going to focus on what is happening here. God, what are you saying to me? Listen close. God, what are you saying to me? Because my heart is broken. And Nehemiah fasted. He spent several days 
weeping and fasting. When he listened, his heart was moved and he cried. Now, I'm not going to ask you, when was the last time you cried about something? But I will tell you, our culture is being somewhat desensitized. We get emotionally flat. How many of you are here? Not a lot moves us anymore. But what if God spoke to you and said, I want you to do the walls around Jerusalem? How many of you would say, not my problem? I'll pick weeds before I'll do that. He didn't. His heart was soft. So I want to say to you, first he listened, then he wept. You'll never, whip, you'll never weep if you don't listen. Then Nehemiah prayed. This was not a one-time event. In this book, we have 12 incidences of prayer that is recorded. As a matter of fact, this book opens and closes with prayer. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, when I was a kid, um, I didn't really understand prayer. I thought it was kind of weird to talk to somebody that I couldn't see. Are you here? I just kind of didn't get it. I, I, I grew and I learned and so on and so forth. But prayer is a forgotten part of the faith walk. You know, we've all prayed the prayer, God, you get me out of this one. And I promise you, I'll never do this again. Have you ever prayed that prayer? It's the worst prayer you could ever pray. Because when you do it again, it's just so guilt-ridden. You know, you know what prayer really is? It's talking to God just like God's like right here. And you can pray anytime, anywhere, about anything. Have you ever prayed for wisdom? God, I'm going to this meeting. Don't know what I'm going to say. But I pray you just give me the right words. And he gives you the right words. And you leave. And you, as you're getting in your car, you go, where did that come from? Prayer. Prayer works. It doesn't have to be an hour a day from 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. And if you quit at 7.59, it, it, it um, dissolves the 59 minutes you did put in. Prayer is just talking to God, gang, and saying it the way it is. Trust me, he understands it. He gets it. You do not have to use any fancy language. Just talk to God. So he started talking to God, and as he started talking to God, listening and weeping and praying, finally, Nehemiah got, a, got this call from God. It said, I want you to take a temporary leave of absence. I want you to tell King Artaxerxes that you're going to leave here, and you're going to go, and you're going to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And, ready for this, tell Artaxerxes, the guy you work for, that he's going to pay for it. How many of you are with me? Hey, boss, I'm going to take a sabbatical. I'm going to go to the Dominican Republic. I'm going to build a school for kids where we can feed them and teach them. And I'm going to be gone for 52 days. And uh, school costs $35,000. I just thought I'd tell you I was praying, I was thinking about it, and you're going to pay for it. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a gutsy move. You probably wouldn't do it where you work. I'd do it where I work because Pastor Greg would at least hear me out and then tell me no, okay? 
now all of a sudden, he does this fourth uh, verb that vexes our heart. He volunteered. He said, I'll do it. I'll do it, Dad. And you know what's funny? God gave him this detailed plan of how he was to go, and in 52 days, he was supposed to rebuild these walls. Now, we'll get into that over the next several weeks, the whole process of the building of the walls. But in 52 days, this is how clear God was. I want you to do this, and I want you to do this, I want you to do this, then do this, then do this, then do this. And I'm telling you, it'll all be paid for, and you'll keep your job, and Artaxerxes will love you. He'll take you back. This is all going to work just like butter. That's butter. It's just going to be so smooth. And I want to share something with you. It wasn't. Wait till you hear what happened. But God gave him a plan. I want to share something with you. I told Pastor Greg I wanted to share, and he authorized it. And uh, back in 2007, something like this happened to me. I was on staff at a church eight miles from the Capitol in Crofton, in uh, Bowie, Maryland. We lived in Crofton. It's halfway between D.C. and Annapolis. And I was the executive pastor on staff at a church. I had been there for about two years. And I went to a conference in um, Springfield, Missouri. And it was a conference for an organization called Convoy of Hope. And I pretty much knew all the guys that ran Convoy of Hope. And they were my friends. And they, they started from a guy named Hal Donaldson giving away free potatoes in his front yard because they had a truckload of potatoes that nobody wanted. So he just put out a sign and said, free potatoes, and started giving out potatoes. Now they're all over the world. They're some of the first people uh, that go in. They're over in uh, Poland right now. They have trucks set up. They give away food, feed kids all over the world. Huge organization. But it started with him giving away potatoes in his front yard. So I went to this conference, and I had pretty much heard everything there was to hear about Convoy of Hope because I had been around them since they started it. So when I'm in a meeting and I pretty much have heard what's being talked about, I have this thing I do. It's not spiritual. I take a mental vacation because I'm not really interested. I already know. So I take a mental vacation to Bethany Beach, Delaware. I set up my umbrella. I have my food there, French fries, and they're seagull-free. And I'm sitting on the beach watching the waves. That's what I do. So I said, I'm just going to take a mental vacation. So in my mind, I set up my umbrella. I set up my chair. I, I sit down. And when I sit down, I felt like the Holy Spirit said this, not audibly, but straight to my heart, not this time, buddy. That's what I heard in my, in my spiritual mind. Not this time, buddy. What? What do you mean? I know all this stuff. I don't feel like listening. Now, you're not going to listen. Take out a piece of paper and a pen. I've got a plan for you. And I'm going, look, I'm, I'm 50 years old. Are you with me? I'm 50 years old. The plan is done. And this is what happened, guys. 
Some of you know about parts of it. All of a sudden, the, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, I want, you to, I want you to develop five columns of compassion. And I'm like, okay. So I wrote down five columns of compassion. For the next hour, I wrote down the following stuff. Column number one, teacher luncheons. I want you to recruit as many prizes as you can for teachers. I want you to cook them a lunch, and then I want you to go to the principal and say, we're going to give you a thank you lunch. This is in 2007, guys. It's 15 years ago. You're going to give them a lunch, and then you're going to give them a bunch of prizes, and you're just going to tell them how much you appreciate them being in your neighborhood. I write it all down. Specifics, like bullet points. How many of you are here? I had bullet points, man. I, I, I had it all. And then the question, I said, okay, God, where am I going to get the money? Don't worry about it. We'll get to that later. I'm like, okay. Column number two, a little ditty called Little Feet. How many have ever heard of Little Feet? It's shoes for needy kids. He said, Steve, starting in September, when school starts, I want you to develop a little program called Little Feet. And you're going to go to all the principals around your neighborhood. And here is the theme God put in my head. Not within spitting distance of our church will someone go without adequate footwear. Now, you got to understand, we lived in Bowie, Maryland. It's a direct suburb in Prince George's County of Washington, D.C. We didn't have one neighborhood school. We had 17. And I'm like, God, that's 17 schools. He goes, just write. I'm like, okay, all right. Bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. Gave me the whole plan, just like we do it here, guys. You're going to go to the principal. You're going to say, any kid that needs adequate shoes, you just text me. I'll get a secret shopper. They'll go shop, and they'll get a, a pair of shoes. They'll take it to the school. You have to take the kid out of the class, or we're not putting the shoes on their feet, because if we don't put the shoes on their feet, we don't get any participation. They'll let you do it. And I'm like, God, it's church, it's school. Just write, Steve, just write. I wrote all this down. God, where are we going to get? That could be expensive. You know how much shoes cost? God, I don't, where are we going to get the money? Just, we'll get to that later. So that was column number two. Column number three, we haven't done here. I'm not saying we will, but it was clear as a bell, touch of Christmas. God, what's touch of Christmas? I want you every year, the first Saturday of December, to open up the gymnasium at the church. I want you to call Convoy of Hope and ask them for a trailer full of food, 42,000 pounds of groceries. I want you to ask them for the truck, and I want you to ask them to give it to you. And then I want you to separate it all, and I want you to have a bagging party. Has anybody ever been to a bagging party? I want you to bag all those groceries, separate them, lay them out, <coughs> and then every, I want everyone to come in for one night and bag. And any age could bag. First one we did, I got 42,000 pounds of food, truckload of food. And we had a bagging party and bagged 600 bags of groceries. I mean, that's a lot of food. We had no idea how many people were coming. Then he said, then I want you to open up the gym and have a party. And I want you to have hygiene bags with toothbrushes and, and uh, hairbrushes and um, Everything that a kid 
should have that is just his. No one should ever share a toothbrush. Are you here? Ever. Forever. Ever. And so we did hygiene bags. And he said, then I want you to have them walk through that door of the gym into the lobby, and then I want you to give every child a coat before they go home. And then as they leave, have people there with shopping carts walk them to their car and put their food in their trunk, and I want you just to bless them. Touch of Christmas. Okay, God, now that's a lot of money. A coat for every kid, free lunch, ba da 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 I stopped asking how we're going to pay for it. I figured he would just tell me we're going to take care of that later. Number four. Now, listen, guys, I'm sitting in a, in a service like you are, and I'm writing down column number four. What's column number four? I want you to start a ministry called Helping Hands. This is a weekly confidential drive through food distribution. I had no idea that 2008 was coming. 2008 was a horrible year everywhere, but especially in D.C. People were losing their jobs, losing their homes. People were coming through our food line in Land Rovers and Mercedes. And God said, you're going to see all kinds of people, but don't you judge them. And don't you tell them no. And I wrote that down. Do not judge. Do not tell no. He said, I want you to, sir, I want you to just get, put barrels in the lobby of the church. And every week, tell people to bring groceries. Bring all they can. And he said, every Tuesday at 530, you're going to have bagged food ready to go. And he said, I want you to get all you can. And then I want you every Tuesday to give all you get. And I want you to get, wipe it out. And I'll provide for the next Tuesday. He's going like the widow's cruise of oil. And I'm like, wow. Now, that one I didn't have to, have to ask how much it would cost because it was free. So I wrote it all down. I had it all figured out. And then finally, it says, column number five. There should not be a family within spitting distance of this church that does not have a Thanksgiving dinner. And so the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, we distributed full Thanksgiving dinners. I got to do it in Maryland. I got to do it in California. It's incredible. In California, in San Diego County, we gave away meals at 6 o'clock at night. At 6 a.m. in the morning, it's a drive-thru, no questions asked. At 6 o'clock in the morning, we had 40 cars lined up for food sick 12 hours later. So we did the same thing with the barrels, bring the food. We gave them a bag, put in the bag what, what we tell you to put in the bag, bring it to church, and when we get to church, we're going to make sure it's all right, and then we're going to give away everything we get. But we needed turkeys. How many of you are here? Now, turkeys can be expensive. They can be cheap. I did this in California, I did it in Maryland, and then I was the volunteer pastor. Have you ever had a volunteer pastor? I was volunteer pastor for Family Worship Center downtown. And we were very, very small. We didn't have much money. And I got a group of people together. I said, do you think we could do um, fall feast? Do you think we could do this Thanksgiving dinner? I said, here's what we need. How many people do we need to serve in the church? They said, ah, 10. I said, okay, how about if I go over to Piper Burley? 
How many of you have been to Piper Borough? You know what it is? Right down on 12th Street, okay? Pretty rough neighborhood. So I want you to go to Piper Burley, and I want you to go to the principal, and I want you to say to the principal, we want to feed your needy families at Thanksgiving a full Thanksgiving meal. How many families do you have? The community organizer for the school started crying. He goes, you've got to be kidding me. I said, nope, we're going to do it. We'll pay for it. I didn't have any money. I mean, you know, it's more fun to do when you don't have any money because God's going to take care of it. She said, come with me. She took me to the principal's office. I said, look, this is who I am. I'm the volunteer pastor, 12th and Parade. We want to do your needy family. She said you have 25. He goes, if you gave us 25 meals, that would be incredible. And I said, done deal. I got no money down. I had just retired and was not real willing to part with any of my cash. I went back to the church. I told the people, said, here's what we're going to do. Now, that was, that was right around COVID. How many of you are here? And turkeys were expensive. And I said, we need 35 turkeys and 35 meals. Here's your list. Bring your bag with you. And so the next week, they started bringing in the food, and I'm going, where am I going to get 35 turkeys? They don't, we don't have the money. So in my mind, I felt like the Holy Spirit said, call um, Dave. I think his first name's Dave. He lives in Homer City, Pennsylvania. Anybody here ever been to Homer City? You ain't been nowhere unless you've been to Homer City, okay? Call Dave and ask Dave. Now, Dave does turkeys. But Dave does organic turkeys. How many of you are in the room? Dave's turkeys was $7 a pound. So a 10-pound turkey was $70. He said, call Dave and ask Dave if he knows anybody that does turkeys that you can afford. So I called Dave. I said, Dave, I know I can't afford your turkeys, but who do you know that does turkeys that I can buy 35 from at a reasonable price? Because I had been to Sam's, and Sam's would not sell me 35 turkeys. I couldn't afford them anyway, but they wouldn't sell that many. So he said, well, Steve, listen, let me, let me check. I'll call you back. My phone rings five minutes later, and he said, I got your turkeys. I said, you're kidding. I said, how much? He goes, free. I said, you're kidding. He goes, nope, I'm going to give you 35 free organic turkeys, 25 pounds. Somebody's already got their calculator going. Thousands of dollars worth of organic turkeys free. I said, when do I pick them up? He said, they're frozen, but I need you to get them out of my freezer because I'm getting ready to start doing Thanksgiving. I said, so I need to get them now? He says, you got to get them now. I'm like, okay, I'll be there. So I'm going to drive my truck to Homer City. I'm going to pick up the turkeys, and I'm going to drive them back, and I'm going to put them in. What am I going to put them in? And my brain is going, well, I can put four in my freezer. I can two here, one there. So we're all thinking I have a little meeting after church. I'm like, well, I don't know where. I can take two. We're up to like 11. So we're going to have 24 sitting out. Hopefully the, you know, the weather didn't go above 32. I'm like, what are we going to do? I had this thought. You remember when you were a kid and your dad bought a half a side of beef and he used to rent a freezer? Do you guys remember those days? You could rent a freezer. 
Check and see if anybody does that. By the way, don't try. Nobody does that. But I called this freezer place at 12th in Pittsburgh, I think it is. And I said to the girl on the phone, here's what I'm doing. I told her the whole story. I got these free turkeys. She goes, hold on a minute. You're telling the wrong person. She puts me on the phone with the owner. And the owner says, what do you have? Told him the whole story. I need to store 35 turkeys for three weeks. And he says, bring them here. And I said, how much? And he said, free. We gave away 35 meals to 30, 25 needy families at Piper Burley, 10 in our church, and it cost zero dollars, guys, zero. And when I went back to give away the food at Piper Burley, the principal was standing on the loading dock and goes, I can't believe this. I said, dude, me either. I'm going to close with this. Five columns of compassion. It happened in an hour, and every one of them came true. I flew back to, <coughs> to uh, D.C., went back to the office. I had it all typed up, went into my boss, and I said, hey, Mark, I feel like God gave me this. And I was just wondering what you thought. He said, Sarah, he reads through it, and I'm thinking nobody in their right mind is going to say yes to this. He wasn't in his right mind. He said, we're going to do all five. Get started. And he said, we're going to pay for all of it. You just tell me how much money you need, and we'll give it to you. Are you guys here? My, and, and I'll close with this, because there's a ton more I could tell you, but I'm going to close with this because I've gone long enough. The first year, we were going to give every kid a gift. And we wanted them to get a gift besides a coat. The coats, I finagled a deal with uh, Old Navy and got $25 coats for $5. Every kid got a coat. But we wanted to give them a $10 gift. So I got up in church and said, hey, if you can bring a $10 gift, just bring a $10 gift and put it in the barrel in the lobby, and we'll, uh, we'll make sure they get it. After church, this girl walks up to me, and she says, Pastor Steve, I love what you're doing. She goes, I work at the amusement park. What's it called? Six Flags, right down from, from Bowie. She said, I work at Six Flags, and we are, we are changing our prize line from, uh, from Thomas the Train to a new movie. And she said, I have a bunch of Thomas the Train toys. And you can have them for free. If it's free, it's for me. I looked at this girl. I said, you serious? I said, well, I have a pickup truck. I can come down. Can I come down tomorrow? I'll pick them up. She goes, yeah, you'll need something bigger than that. I said, what will I need? She goes, you get the biggest U-Haul truck they write, and you come and pick them up. Guys, I am not exaggerating. We went. We left. We went over to... Uh, I think it's King's Dominion. Went over to this. No, it's, uh, but it's Six Flags. Went over. She told me where to go. I backed the truck up. They opened the door. 26-foot U-Haul truck with an attic. You know what the attic is, that little area over the driver's seat? Filled it to the brim. 
We had enough toys for 600 kids. I had 600 coats. I had 600 bags of groceries for toys. I have seen what Nehemiah saw in a much smaller scale. God called me to be a compassionate pastor. Now, I had been in for a long time, but the last 15 years, guys, I got to be honest with you, they've been the most fun years of my life. Because I listened, I wept, I volunteered. I want you to stand with me if you would. Nehemiah, the whole book, has to do with a guy who had a moment where God said, I want you to change history. I want you to change history. God, I don't want you to do that. Yeah, well, I got... 600 Thomas the Train toys, need, they need a home. I got it covered. How many of you believe that God can speak to you and you can be his instrument of change? There's one, two, there's several. Let's pray. Father, our world needs rebuilding. Poor people need they need to be blessed. I know the scripture says we'll have them with us always, but that does not eliminate our responsibility to make sure they're fed and warm. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would speak to all of us and help us to understand we may hear something that we need to do something about. Give us the heart to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.